This program contains adult language and is intended for a mature audience. This is Feedback, a Q6 audio production. Written by Kevin Shea, directed and edited by Jill Harper, executive producer Christine Groom. Previously on Feedback, Valerie and Martin sat in their living room and argued with a man from the phone company. On the surface, the argument concerned a billing issue, but for Valerie, it had become something more. A struggle for control of a life that in recent weeks had begun to feel at risk of breaking down. The tears Martin saw running down his wife's face and the trembling in her voice provoked him into a state of agitation he could not control. Despite the representative's efforts, the rigidity of the company's policies was triggering something. A reckoning with Valerie and Martin's past and with their lost son. He is the subject of our next chapter. Chapter 5. Bradley. You like that? You like that? Like that, you fucking... Shit, you punk ass. Who's the man now, huh? Huh, bro? Who's a fucking Chad, huh? Yeah, you all talk. You sit there and post. Who actually did something? Who went beast mode on these motherfucking... These fucking... You pussies? You fucking pussies didn't do anything. You just sat there. You didn't do a fucking thing. Oh my god. Oh my god, oh my god, fuck. Yeah, that's right, it's a war. It's a war. The world is at stake. Our existence, our existence. God, oh my god. When Bradley was three, Martin and Valerie noticed that he couldn't walk in a straight line. Both his knees pointed to the right. The doctor prescribed a special pair of shoes connected by a straight steel bar. Bradley was to wear these in bed every night to keep his feet and knees pointed forward. After six months, he was able to walk without veering to the side, but there were other problems. Bradley was inflexible and easily injured. He was repeatedly held back in his swimming classes, and despite being an above-average runner, lacked the coordination of his little league teammates. His parents hoped this athletic weakness would be balanced by a talent for academics but Bradley showed little enthusiasm for school. Getting him to finish his homework each night was a battle Valerie and Martin would take turns fighting. Valerie cheerily cajoling, Martin growing increasingly impatient. Math was a particular difficulty, with each assignment and test further undermining Bradley's sense of confidence. Valerie bought a slew of exercise books, but her son already felt overburdened and refused to open them. Martin had always excelled at math, had, in fact, loved the comforting precision of balanced equations, and his frustration about his son's lack of ability was obvious. Since becoming a father, Martin had vowed to better contain his anger. But there were many nights when he would explode. Sometimes Bradley would respond with tears, and other times with a rage that Valerie found unnerving. When Bradley was 12, they hired a local high school student as a tutor. She had rich brown hair and large green eyes. Bradley was smitten. Valerie hoped the crush would act as a harmless incentive, but during their third lesson, Bradley flew into a rage when he couldn't solve an algebra problem. He tore up the paper he had been working on and kicked over his chair. The girl was so distressed by the intensity of his anger that she refused to return. Martin hired a male university student next, hoping Bradley would feel less humiliated if it were a man instructing him, but Bradley refused to participate. The one activity Bradley enjoyed was going on the computer. 
Martin was optimistic this would lead to an interest in programming and spent thousands of dollars on a high-end PC. But Bradley had little interest in the technical aspects of computing. His passion was a role-playing game called Conquest, which he would play at every available moment. He became an active member of the game's online community and a frequent poster on the dominant web forum. Through Conquest, an awkward, fragile boy was able to establish himself as a connoisseur and an expert, and he quickly became popular and well-respected. Most members of the forum believed him to be an adult. The increasing amount of time Bradley spent on the computer made Valerie anxious, but she tolerated it because it seemed to bring her son a level of peace. Then, one Sunday morning, Bradley refused to accompany Valerie and Martin to church. They had long sensed that religion held no significance for Bradley, but they believed exposure to community was important. And, though they would never admit it, they feared the embarrassment they would feel in front of their friends if they came without their son. And so, when Bradley insisted he remain home and play Conquest, they descended quickly into a loud and painful argument, ending with Martin taking the computer's power cord to church. Upon their arrival back home, Bradley had broken one of their lamps and cut up their mattress with a knife. Martin snapped the copy of Conquest in half, and computer games were banned from the household. Valerie worried that this was the beginning of their estrangement, a decision that, no matter how well-reasoned and necessary it seemed, caused an irreparable rift between them. His one source of confidence taken from him, Bradley withdrew. A tense sadness struck the household. Martin took Pogo for longer and longer walks at night, while Valerie sat alone in front of the television, increasingly entranced by cable news. All the while, Bradley sat alone in the computer room, chatting with his friends on the internet. Our son is gone, okay? He's gone! He's gone, and he and and, and my wife, you know, she's very fragile. So you have to cut us some slack here. Deep breaths. <clears throat> That's it. That's it. Deep breaths. <sighs> sir, sir, are you still there? <sighs> yeah, I'm here. Sir, I'm going to stay on this line until you are 100% satisfied. That is my personal guarantee. Does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. What was your name again? Akbar. And I'm so sorry for your loss. It's it's hard to imagine what grieving a child is like. Um, please accept my condolences. Oh, he's not dead. Oh. Oh, okay. He just left when he was 16, and we don't really speak. It's, it's... Marty. Sir? Give me the phone. No, I can deal with this. I'm fine now. I'm fine, really, and I want to talk to him. Hello? Akbar? Speaking. I'm so sorry. Ignore Marty. Old men get emotional, you know. Not that I'm any better. I cry at the slightest provocation. But we're fine. And I know you're in a difficult position. I'm sorry I got so upset. I'm normally not like this. That's completely understandable. I, I cry too sometimes. You do? Well, sometimes there's nothing better than pouring yourself a drink, putting on some Celine, and, and having a good cry. Celine Dion. What a singer. Generational talent. I tell Marty he should cry, but men have a hard time with that. They can get angry, but sadness? I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, and in one of my classes we talked about how men have difficulty processing emotions. That can definitely be the case. Do you think being transsexual has made you better at being vulnerable? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I am not... I'm not a transsexual or transgendered person, actually. I, um, 
I'm just a gay man who does drag. Oh, God. I'm sorry. That's all right. I didn't know there was a difference. It's fine. All the terms, the words. I know, I know, it's fine. <laughs> They're always changing. Yeah, well... I don't always know what to call people either. <sighs> so? You're a drag man. Um, I'm just a man. A gay man. Yes, a gay man. And someone who does drag is a drag queen, but that's uh, that's almost like a job title. Oh, so then has being a drag queen made you better at vulnerability? Does it get you in touch with your feminine side? Uh, ooh, I don't know. I actually have a hard time with vulnerability. Really? I, I think a lot of gay men do. I think it's hard for everyone. Not for me. <sighs> all, all right. I'm an open wound. Well, that must be hard as well. It's a harsh world for open-hearted people. I imagine it is. It's hard to find people to really talk to. (laughs) You can talk to me. Can I? Yes. Tell me what's going on. I don't know where to start. Your, Your husband mentioned your son? Yes. Is he... Is that something that, that you... We have no idea where he is. I see. Something happened, though. Uh, he... Um... You don't have to talk about it. No, he's telling Marty he needs to talk more. I'm here to listen. Bradley had so many problems when he was young. Oh. I'm not gonna say anything, I'm just... His heart was good. I think he would have been fine if he hadn't met Andy. Andy attended the same high school as Bradley, but was already known to him through an internet forum. Two years older and similarly alienated from school and sports, Andy recognized Bradley as a fellow outcast and was quick to take him under his wing. For Bradley, who hadn't made friends easily, his relationship with an older student became a source of pride. He began going over to Andy's house after school to play computer games and look at pornography, and sometimes he would sleep over on a couch in the basement. Andy shared Bradley's interests and introduced him to new ones, such as drinking and new atheism. Andy was particularly interested in a forum dedicated to pickup artists, and they would spend hours discussing the bodies of girls they knew and what kind of strategies they might employ to seduce them. In Andy's final year of high school, he began dating one of Bradley's classmates a quiet girl named Denise. The triangulation caused by their relationship fostered a quiet sorrow in Bradley, as Andy began realizing the sexual fantasies he and Bradley had fervently discussed only between themselves. While Bradley would play StarCraft against children in South Korea, Andy and Denise would lie under a blanket on the couch behind him, quietly engaged in sexual acts Bradley sensed were happening, but couldn't bear to witness. And so he would play late into the night until he was confident Denise had gone home and he would remove his headphones and turn around, finding the couch that was to be his bed that night empty. That Bradley had long had a crush on Denise and that Andy knew this made his anguish even worse. I don't know what the two of them got up to, but that's when he started to really withdraw. I mean, he wouldn't say more than a few words to us. Marty thought they would drift apart when Andy graduated, but then Bradley left and moved into Andy's house at 16. I know teenagers need to separate from their parents that is part of their development, but what kind of child moves out of their parents' house at 16? I mean, that's really weird, isn't it? And Andy's parents took him in? His mother was very odd. 
I think she did drugs. But I don't know. I don't know what went on over there. I was never let inside. Do you get along with your parents? Yeah, we get along. They didn't disown you because you're homosexual? No. As I said, we get along. They must be very tolerant people. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm their son. Because in that culture, you know, Muslim culture, you can't be gay or cross-dress or anything. I don't know what to tell you. My parents are totally fine with it. And they're from Pakistan? Born and raised. Wow. Well, we would have supported Bradley if he were a homosexual or even transsexual. We wouldn't have cared. We would have used whatever name he wanted. That's good to hear. Maybe he is those things. Maybe he thought we didn't approve because of the church. But that's not a big part of what the church believes. I mean, it just doesn't come up much. I would have been happy if he'd had any kind of relationship. You know, nothing too serious, but something loving. I don't know if he ever had that. Andy's mother loved parties and encouraged Andy to have friends over to drink and smoke weed in her home. Her willingness to procure these substances for her son allowed him and Bradley to attract Denise and her friends. And at one of these parties, Bradley, with Andy's goading, kissed a classmate named Claire. He was inebriated and had not been attracted to her until the moment their lips touched. The shock of it, how soft and wet and intimate the act was, opened something unruly and frightening inside him. After that night, Claire was all Bradley could think about. He wrote her notes and slipped them into her locker. He sent her long emails written entirely in lowercase, praising her beauty and promising to be there for her no matter what. He watched her as she talked with her friends in the cafeteria or on the bus, but he was unable to approach her. And after several weeks of lurking in the distance and countless messages, Denise intervened and informed him that Claire wasn't interested in him and would like to be left alone. Bradley suspected his crush had developed feelings for someone else and began concocting elaborate revenge fantasies against various classmates. Even once he had graduated high school and become a stock boy at an electronics store, he continued to think about Claire, fantasizing about their reunion and the life they would embark on later. That was, after all, how his parents had ended up together. Other times, he would wish for bad things to happen to her. Before she made her social media private, he had seen that she was engaged. Her fiancé, Bradley noted, had skin several shades darker than his own. Valerie and Martin knew none of this. Their son was hidden from them, in a room with no windows and no door. The only evidence they had of his life since moving out were the videos the police brought to their attention, videos which showed them a side of Bradley they could not recognize. It was as if their son had been replaced. Or perhaps this is who he always was, and they simply hadn't been able to see it. Look at this fucking guy. Thinks he can get me? Huh? Huh? Eat steel, bitch! Yes. Yes! Right. Faggots think they can touch me? I don't think so. I don't think so. Not today, buddy. It's a white man's world. It's a white man's world, and by my sword, it's gonna stay that way. Yeah, get on your knees, bitch. Okay, okay, okay. Come on, cocksucker. Come on. Come, come and get me. Come, come and get me. Come. Fuck you, shit. Cocky motherfucker. No matter how many videos Valerie watched, she couldn't understand how this boy, her son, could have turned into such an angry person. As a child, he had his difficulties, but there had been lightness, too. He loved French toast and cartoons, and when he slept, he made soft, sweet noises with his mouth. His anger, she believed, was born of frustration and would subside once life evened out for him. 
She was convinced that the Bradley she saw online was some kind of performance, that the real Bradley didn't believe what he was saying, but was only acting the way he was to satisfy whoever was watching him. Or if it was real, it was like how Martin would scream at the television during hockey games, just a matter of getting caught up in the moment. If Bradley had met someone as friendly and polite as Akbar, Valerie was sure he would behave normally. You know, when I was a kid, I kept all kinds of stuff from my parents, just out of a desire for privacy. So it's possible he had relationships and just kept them well hidden. That's good to hear. Because we just have the one son. I don't know what's normal. I think it drove my parents crazy not knowing what I was up to. Akbar, you have no idea what the silence does to you. But that's just being a teenager. And now? Do you introduce your gay boyfriends to your parents? Um, well, no, not usually. Why not? I guess... I, I just don't know that anything is going to be permanent. And so going through a visit or whatever, I, uh, I don't really see the point. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But back to your son. Valerie hadn't had anyone express so much interest in Bradley in years. Martin avoided the subject as much as possible, and their friends, sensing desolation, had stopped asking. Valerie was energized by Akbar's curiosity, and even though he was so different, he seemed to have real insight into what her son might have gone through. A part of her began to believe that maybe Akbar and Akbar alone was someone she could actually talk to about what happened and answer the questions she had had about her own role in Bradley's abrupt departure from their lives. Perhaps he could even offer some insight into his disturbing, violent return. Feedback was written by Kevin Shea, directed and edited by Jill Harper, with music by Bram Geelan, and sound design and mastering by Tim Lindsay. Featuring performances by Nadine Baba, David Coomber, Caitlin Driscoll, Rosemary Dunsmore, Kasim Khan, Tom McCamus, Nkasi Ogbonna, Ben Sanders, Jonathan Tan, and Connor Thompson. Christine Groom was the executive producer for Q6 Audio Productions. Feedback was made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. Recording took place at Eggplant Studios in Toronto, Canada. Jack Rudy and Emily Gauguin were our audio engineers, and Mike Ronan was our producer at Eggplant. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review, share, or tell a friend. Q6 is a not-for-profit organization. If you want to support future projects, check out our website at q6.ca, that's C-U-E number 6 to see what we have coming up and hit the donate button.